Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today I have the privilege of having a conversation with Dr. Kevin J. Van Hooser, a good friend who's been loyal to the Lord and a great leader in both the academy and the church. He teaches systematic theology, a research professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He holds degrees from Westmont College in California, Westminster Theological Seminary, and a Ph.D. from Cambridge University in England, the author of numerous books that many of us have read and benefited from across the years. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, Kevin. Thank you. It's good to be at Beeson. Now, you're here at Beeson to give our Reformation Heritage Lectures 2018, and we've enjoyed our time with you very much. I know our students have enjoyed interacting with you. But I wanted to use this occasion on the podcast to talk to you about theology. Now, you're a theologian. So that doesn't seem to be too big of a stretch. And I'm bouncing off an essay you published recently in the journal First Things called Letter to an Aspiring Theologian. Now, before we get into your article and what you were trying to do there uh, to encourage younger theologians to think about theology, uh, let's say a little bit about First Things. What's been your association with First Things? Well, they're, in a sense, the host for the Evangelical Catholic Together discussions that we've both been involved in for several years. Yeah. I've been reading it for several years. It's a forum for um, Christian thought on public issues that um, we have co-belligerents, as it were, Protestants and Roman Catholics, Evangelicals, often on the same page, but addressing issues in a public way of social significance and intellectual significance that don't get addressed as in thorough depth in other magazines. Yeah. And you were asked to write this article uh, by First Things, by our editor, right, Rusty Reno? Our editor did invite me to, and he gave me the title as well. And I think I'm the second in a series of such letters. The first was Paul Griffith's mm -hmm. Letter to an Aspiring Intellectual. Yeah. And it wasn't a stretch for me because I, I often get inquiries about what is it to do theology? How? So I was able to pull f from real letters as well as just craft something de novo of my own. Now, theology is a word that puts some people off, and for various reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is it's seen to be not so directly related to the Christian life. It's heady, it's abstract, it's abstruse sometimes. So you want to bring theology and Christian life into closer association, don't you? I do. Uh, it's always sad to me when people, believers, uh, talk about theology as something impractical. And I sometimes hear this, or at least I used to hear this in my seminary classes. They were in my classes because it was a requirement. I think theology and doctrine are vital for discipleship. Uh, theology tells us the way the world is in Christ. It tells us the way we should be going to follow that way. It gives us understanding. So under, there's nothing more practical, I would argue, than understanding and understanding our faith and the way and truth and life of Jesus Christ and how to follow that today. So I think doctrine is vital for making disciples, people who can understand what it means to follow Jesus, who he was, and what his way is. Was Jesus a theologian? 
Jesus was a theologian because he spoke often and regularly about God, <laughs> and theology is speech about God. He might even say he was theology incarnate. <laughs> ah, good. Theology, you say, is the study of how to speak truly of God and of all things in relation to God, which really doesn't leave anything out, does it? It doesn't. I have a lot of work to do, <laughs> a lot of remedial reading, to things to catch up on. But so the theologian is interested in everything, but everything in relation to God. So there's still an anchor. There's something, and this is a dimension that really needs to be included in universities, for example. Universities study all sorts of subjects, but the role of the theologian in a university is to make sure that people are relating them to God. Arguably, there is no other principle of unity in a university than the creator through whom all things have come to be. We wouldn't have these various subject matters without a creator God. I want to get to Revelation in a minute because how do we? How can we talk about God? How do we even use that word with any meaning? But um, first, think about this definition. You quote this definition from William Ames. Theology is a question of living before God, of living in the presence of God. Uh, the the science, the knowledge, theologia esciensa vivendo Deo. Theology is the knowledge or the science of living before God which connects, again, spirituality and theology. Definitely. So, and it raises questions about what, who, what we are as human beings, who we are, why are we here? These are the big questions. We may not have time to give them thought, but human beings have been, from the start, addressed by God. And the human project, I think, is knowing how to live to God, how to respond to God's address. It's not simply in Scripture, of course, it's in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. If we can still see the heavens, despite all the light pollution in our <laughs> cities, what is our response? Uh, nature confronts us. Our conscience confronts us. So to be human is to be faced with the question, how do we respond to the gift of our existence? Good. I love the way you begin with Thomas Aquinas. He gives us a very famous definition. Why don't you tell us that definition and then give us a bit of an explication of it? So Thomas Aquinas writes, and this is hundreds of years ago, but he writes that theology is taught by God, teaches of God, and leads to God. And each of those prepositions from of to is important. Uh, we can't speak of God in and of ourselves. We can't examine God with scientific instruments. So as a science, we're dependent upon the given, as all scientists are. But in this case, it's God giving him knowledge of himself, revelation. So the amazing thing about Christianity and the beginning of all theology is that we speak of God because he has first spoken to us. Otherwise, we would be fairly in the dark, but God has spoken in many modes. And I think this is what Aquinas has in mind. He, we are taught by God himself, primarily in the scriptures, his self-revelation. And the scriptures are largely about God and his purposes for human beings, for the world. He's told us what he's done in history. And so that's what he means by saying teaching of God. And the purpose of this communication is for us to respond, and God wants to draw us back because we've lost our way in the world. So the idea of being led to God, I think scripture, theology, 
It's discourse about God, but the ultimate aim is cultivating godliness in us, a right orientation to God. Now, you've thought and written a lot about Scripture and how we understand it, how we interpret it, um, and you give us four words that you think theology ought to track, uh, Trinitarian, Biblical, Catholic, and Systematic. We'll come back to the other three, but focus on Biblical for just a minute. First of all, let me ask you, why did you start with Trinitarian instead of Biblical? I mean, one of the objections to theology is that we don't need it, we have the Bible. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean when you say theology is and ought to be Biblical? Right. So Scripture is the soul of theology. Um, there is a way of trying to speak of God that bypasses Scripture. It's called natural theology. It only takes us so far. Uh, we can't say the things we really want to say about Jesus and the gospel just by looking at nature. So we need this special word from God, and we have it. So my thinking about God, my speech about God, has to be tied to these words. These are the words that God uses to teach me how to speak about him. So as a theologian, I see myself first and foremost as a reader of Scripture, one that not simply gets the grammar right, but but is asking questions about the subject matter. So we have to get beyond the grammar, beyond these difficult old-fashioned words, to, to the subject matter of Scripture. So being biblical means learning to think about God, the world, and ourselves through what Calvin calls the spectacles of faith, through these lenses that Scripture affords. And there, it's a very complex set of lenses. It's not just one kind of book. We have a whole set of books in the Bible, different kinds of books. And all of these, I think, together don't simply give us information about God, though they do that, but they also help us to view the world the right way, and they touch as Abraham Kuyper says, all the chords of our soul. It's not just about giving us knowledge. It's about inspiring us, giving us comfort, consolation, guidance, warnings. Uh, it's, the project is to form human beings who reflect God back to him. We are his images. Now, we know the word Trinity is not actually found in the Bible. It was coined in probably the third century by Tertullian and became a part of the vocabulary of Christian theologians and Christian believers in the West, especially initially. Um, I like what Moltmann said. I wonder if you would comment on this. The Trinity is the story of God as told through Jesus, or the story of Jesus as the story of God, I think is what he actually says. Uh, what, what is the Trinity? So this is the abstract concept people often fear about Trinity, uh, about theology. The first thing I want to say is I'm not interested in abstract speculation, and neither were the church fathers. The so-called doctrine of the Trinity, and it is complex, but it's a, it was quite a human feat to get to this concept And the purpose that they uh, had in formulating the doctrine of the Trinity was to answer Jesus' own question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? There are only so many options. And at the time, some people were reading the Bible and saying that uh, Jesus was a creature. So the church fathers in the third century and afterwards knew that what was at stake in this doctrine of the Trinity was Jesus' own status. So in order to read the story of Jesus right, they felt we had to come to some understanding of God as three in one. Somehow Jesus, this man, the story and the scriptures say things about him 
that clearly imply, they don't state, but they clearly imply that Jesus is doing the same kinds of things that God does, that he is receiving worship, forgiving sins, the kind of things that God does. The identity of Jesus is converges on the identity of God, and yet there's one God. And this was a problem for the early church. How do we read this text as monotheists and confess that Jesus is the one through whom all things were made, that he forgives sins, that we are to worship him? And the answer they came to was that somehow Jesus is God, and yet God is one. And to spell that out required a full-fledged formulation of what is now the doctrine of the Trinity. And many of the words that we associate with the classical Trinitarian teaching, the Creed of Nicaea and so forth, use rather long and for us uh, fancy words, homoousios and so forth. Uh, And it's uh, one of the criticisms of the doctrine of the Trinity has been that this is really uh, a Hellenizing of Christianity. It's taking on Plato and all the Greek philosophers and uh, really subjecting Jesus uh, to that foreign, alien element. Mm -hmm. Now, the church had to deal with that uh, very specifically. What would be your response to that today if someone made that objection? So I don't think Greek philosophy took the Bible captive. That's been an old story. It's called the Hellenization thesis. I like to reverse it, and I like to think that the church fathers were missionaries, and they were trying to speak the gospel into Greek culture. So instead instead of the Hellenization of the gospel... We could think of it as the evangelization of Hellenism. That's good. Uh, it's, it's the first act of contextual theology, and it needs to be done again and again as the gospel enters new cultures. Another word you use to talk about theology and theologians is Catholic. Again, a controversial word. And for some people, of course, they immediately associate Catholic with Roman Catholicism, which is one definition of Catholic, but not the only one. What is Catholic? Catholic means, is a reference to the whole church. And um, I do think the church fathers, the reformers, Protestants were originally Catholics. They want, they knew the church is one. There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. That's another way of talking about the Catholicity. It has to do with the scope of people who agree on the one faith. And any adjectival qualifier like Roman, well, that circumscribes the scope to some extent. You might almost say it's a contradiction in terms (laughs) to limit Catholicity. The whole point of the concept is to express universality. We have to spell out what kind of universality, but the Catholicity I have in mind here is, is believing with the whole church across cultures, across centuries, and there is a consensus about first order truths that we can discern so much so that some would speak of the great tradition, referring to the Catholic or universal tradition, things that all Christians have agreed on. And the the last word you use is systematic. Now, that's again a word that gets people's hackles up. Systematic. Uh, It sounds like a Procrustean kind of bed you're putting people into to be systematic. Uh, And yet you defend that word. You think theology ought to be and in some ways must be systematic. Mm -hmm. Let me first acknowledge that there are systems that are uh, procrustean, that there are systems that uh, people would like to force the Bible to fit, and I'm not, that's not what I have in mind. Another way of thinking about system would be just consistency. That is, 
to say, speak of systematic theology means that what you say about one doctrine will have an effect on others. There's a, there's a linkage, for example, between the doctrine of original sin, what you think the problem is, and the question of election and atonement and so on, salvation. There's a, there's a linkage, an important linkage. And I think the best theologians have tried to read Scripture as a unified, coherent story. So the softer version of systematics that I commend is simply the one that tries to articulate the coherence of the biblical story. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, hermeneutics. That's a word that is associated with you in your many, many writings. Is there a meaning in this text? Is maybe your most famous book, though you've written a lot of them. But uh, say a little bit about how we read and understand the Bible. Uh, you use a, a, a quotation from C.S. Lewis that I think is very illuminating. Lewis makes a distinction between looking at a beam of light and looking along a beam of light. Uh, what is that about? So Lewis there is, I think is a great image. The Bible is the light unto our path. So it's wonderful to compare the Bible to a beam of light. And Lewis imagines someone coming into a dark storage room and seeing a beam of light. If you stand apart from it, which is his way of speaking, if you have a critical distance, you can look at it objectively. You can see certain dust particles floating and so on, but that's all you'll see. And then he says, if you step into the beam of light and look along it, you'll see the source, which is the sun. And I think he's trying to say that it's one thing to have a critical distance from the Bible and analyze it, but not be personally engaged, and quite another to submit yourself to it, enter the world, inhabit its story, and then look along it as a participant, not as a, someone who's trying to maintain neutral objectivity, critical distance. Yeah. So uh, in universities and seminaries, divinity schools, we, we sometimes distinguish systematic from biblical or historical theology. These are closely interconnected, though, aren't they? And we, while we might separate them for the purposes of offering a course or studying some topic, uh, we have to in some way see them as cohering, coherent, maybe. I think so. I think there are good arguments that could be made for the various departments. We have such specialized bodies of literature now. But there was a time when they were not. <laughs> there was a time when there weren't separate divisions. Everyone was trying to read the Bible to hear the Word of God for the people of God. Uh, so we were reading the Bible with the communion of saints, and historical theology is simply interested in what other saints have found in Scripture. Uh, systematic theology, as I said, is interested in the subject matter of Scripture and trying to go deeper in our understanding of it. And biblical theology is interested in, I think, getting back in, into the um, minds and experience of the original recipients and trying to say what it felt like uh, for the particular authors in their terms to understand God, and then to trace the progression throughout Scripture of how people use different terms to understand the same God and the same story. Here at Beeson, we've had a little bit of a protest movement against uh, uh, the more recent way of fragmenting theology. Uh, I don't know how successful we've been, but every professor here is a professor of divinity, not of this or that discipline within the body of divinity, but of divinity. 
which I guess theoretically means that they have the right to teach and speak on any part of theology without claiming that's not my area, it's yours or hers or his. The other thing is what we've done with um, systematic theology and church history. We've abolished them. That is to say, we no longer have two stackpoles and try to relate them disjunctively, but we brought them together in a sequence we call history and doctrine. And the effort is to look chronologically, but in a more systematic doctrinal way, at the movement in the history of God's people of how these ideas have arisen and how they shaped Christian life. So that's our effort, maybe a protest against uh, what you've described as a disjunctive approach. May your tribe increase. (laughs) In your essay, this wonderful essay, which, by the way, I commend to everyone, Letter to an Aspiring Theologian, How to Speak of God Truly, Kevin Van Hooser, First Things. It was published in August 2018, and I'm sure it's still on the website and available. Um, Would would you say a little bit about um, Luther's phrase, uh, you're you're here adapting or paraphrasing Luther, uh, a theologian is perfectly free, Lord of all s- disciplines and subject to none. In conjunction with what you bring together as two traits or virtues of a theologian, boldness and humility. Now, those two aren't often paired together. Somebody's bold or someone's very humble, but you want them to be in close connection with the- theology, boldness and humility. Yes, and I want people to have the wisdom to know when to exercise the one and when to exercise the other. There's a time for boldness, mainly when we're speaking God's word and not so much our interpretation, and a time for humility when we're out on a limb, perhaps, with our interpretation and further from a Catholic consensus, for example, on what God's word is. But yes, the theologian is lord of all disciplines in the sense that not that we lord it over the disciplines, but in freedom we can and should relate to the various disciplines, taking whatever is good and true and pure, because God is the creator of all things. Um, So I, I do think the discussion between theology and the other disciplines is very important. We don't want to sequester God from the rest of the world. Um, the theologian is, again, who one who wants to relate God to all things. We just need to do that very carefully with humility when we're in uh, the area of other disciplines. And everyone is a theologian. Every Christian is a theologian. You, you, you talk about every pastor should be a theologian, not just those who are in the guild of systematic or historical or biblical theology, but everyone who speaks of God truly is called into this uh, vocation of giving praise to God, which is one of, the reason, one of the meanings of the word confession, isn't it? Not just to say what you believe, but to praise the God who establishes that belief. Um, about a year ago, you and I had a conversation on the Beeson podcast about a document that we were both involved in. You were the primary drafter of it. A number of other people joined uh, in promoting and uh, giving attention to this document called Reforming Catholic Confession. Now we're a year down the road from that original publication, which was Reformation Week, I think, of the year 2017. Yes. 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Say a little bit, looking back now on the Reforming Catholic Confession, the Reformation festivities that we commemorated, and where this this movement is taking us. Well, 
It's a little difficult. I'm not sure how much of movement our Reforming Catholic Confession generated. We don't have an instrument to gauge its reception other than counting up the people who signed on to it officially on our website. You can still do that, www.reformingcatholicconfession.com. still up, and I commend it to you. The exercise was excellent. The exercise was an exercise in Catholicity among Protestants, trying to find areas of doctrinal agreement between people who belong to a variety of different churches. So the exercise itself I found very edifying. But as to the effects, again, we don't have an instrument. What we do have is anecdotal evidence. Again, we have the people who've signed on and we can look at their institutional affiliations. I was I was encouraged to see the number of nations represented on our list. It's been translated into several languages. Several languages, and my hope would be that in some of these contexts, it might serve as a unifying basis for uh, theological institutions, churches, seminaries, and I have been led to believe that in some cases that's the case, that instead of coming up with yet another confessional statement, some groups are thinking about adopting the one we worked on. So I think that's wonderful. Uh, as to the long-term prospects of the Reformation and its significance, um, that story is still being written. And uh, I still have a sense of urgency. I think uh, Roger Nicole is right. Um, there's lots of challenges facing the church, but we don't need a new Reformation. We just need to finish the old one. <laughs> That's great. I'm glad you mentioned Roger Nicole because he is the person who first gave our Reformation Heritage Lectures here at Beeson uh, 30 years ago, and now you're giving them 2018, so that's a wonderful continuity. Well, thank you, Kevin, for visiting Beeson and for being a part of this conversation. God bless you and all your good work. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.